Well, last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we saw the dilemma that was being faced by the Corinthian Christians. Uh, They lived in a city where they were surrounded by idolatry. Becoming a Christian means more than just changing our belief system. We have been transferred out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of God. We've been called to be saints, to be distinctively God's people in the world but not of it. And that call to holiness then raises all kinds of questions about how we live. Uh, We've already seen some of them uh, in this letter, how we deal with disputes, how we view marriage and sexuality and now this matter of uh, doing something that has some kind of association with idolatry. For the Corinthians it was do we eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Now for us it may be something else. It may be something else in our lives that we think if I participate in that am I, am I associating or participating in uh, something that's immoral or idolatrous? Uh, but as I shared last week in our multicultural world and given the, the different cultural backgrounds here in our own church, uh, we still will occasionally face that, that explicit religious idolatry. What do we do? We saw that they'd heard this call from the apostles in Jerusalem to them as Gentile Christians to abstain from meat offered to idols. And so their question to Paul was, well, why can't we? Isn't it my right to eat whatever I want? I'm free in Christ to do whatever I want, surely. In this chapter, Paul uses his role as an apostle to show that uh, living in this world which uh, has a culture of demanding our rights, insisting on our rights, the gospel creates a culture where we lay aside our rights in order to serve one another. Uh, This chapter is actually quite structured because Paul is now, uh, it's almost as if he's standing up in court and he's presenting a case. He presents the case for him uh, legitimately demanding his rights. Uh, The first thing he refers to is his qualifications to claim his rights. If he he chose to, Paul could claim any of these things to say, therefore, uh, you as a church should pay me for my ministry. That's the issue he's dealing with here. Firstly, though, he says that I'm free. Am I not free? To to make that statement in the Roman Empire was uh, to make a statement about your status in the empire. Uh, If you weren't free, if you were a slave and there were more people who were slaves than who weren't slaves in the Roman Empire, slaves had no rights. Slaves didn't even have the status of a human person in Rome. They couldn't take their master to court if they were mistreated. There was no fair work commission, no ombudsman. They couldn't be citizens. 
Masters who owned slaves were free to beat and torture, sexually exploit or even execute their slaves if they wanted to because slaves had no rights. And it's probably no coincidence that over time in the Roman Empire rights for slaves actually gradually began to be introduced and to increase and that coincided exactly with the growth and spread of Christianity across Rome. However, if you were a free person, you could be a Roman citizen and you would have full rights as a citizen. You would have rights to vote. You would have rights to stand for civil or public office. You had the right to take someone to court. You also had the right to be taken to court by someone but to face a a fair trial. That was a right that Paul invoked when he was arrested in Jerusalem. He appealed to Caesar as a Roman citizen, which meant he had to be taken to Rome, the city itself, to face trial. That suited him perfectly because he wanted to go to Rome to preach the gospel and it gave him a free ticket. So to say, I am free, is to say I have access to all of the rights, all of the privileges, all of the protections of citizenship. But Paul, he's not just speaking about his civil rights here, is he? He is a citizen of the kingdom of God in Christ. In Christ he's been set free from all of the demands, all of the condemnation of the law. He's been set free to joyfully obey as a citizen of the kingdom. He's a citizen of heaven and he has access to all of the privileges, all of the rights that that brings. Secondly, he says, am I not an apostle? So not only could he claim rights both in Rome and in the kingdom of God, he could also claim to have a special position within the kingdom of God. As an apostle, he was sent and commissioned by God by Christ himself. He was an authorised ambassador of Christ. He was a kingdom official. He was a representative of the king himself and as such he could have demanded special treatment that not even regular citizens would have a right to. Thirdly, and he's, he's ramping it up each time, I have seen Jesus our Lord. It's one thing to be a kingdom official, it's another thing to have actually met the king personally, to have received your commission face to face. Paul's qualification for being an apostle, as he puts it in 15 verse 8, as to one untimely born, was when he encountered the risen Jesus on the road to Emmaus. It was both his personal conversion but it was also his commissioning to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So, Paul could appeal not only to what is written in the scriptures, but on the basis of the fact that he had met Jesus in person. No one else outside the apostles had had that experience. And then fourthly, he says, you are my workmanship in the Lord. 
Paul, Paul has built up a very impressive CV so far, hasn't he? In the qualifications, he's put free citizen, apostle and witness of the risen Jesus. But he can also put plenty in the section of experience and demonstrated abilities. He could point to all that he had accomplished in his ministry. If he was around today, he would, could have a website, apostlepaul.com, and could list all of the churches that he's planted and how, how the churches have grown and all the fruitfulness of his ministry. So he's not only qualified, he's proven his qualification in the fruitfulness of his work. Remember how the Corinthians were saying, we are kings, we are rich, we have what we want and Paul had to knock them off of their pedestal. He had to say to them, well if you're kings, if you're rich, if you have everything you need, then why are us apostles the scum of the earth and the refuse of all things? to these people who are claiming their privileged position in Christ as a a way to get honour and a way to get status in the church. Paul's saying to them, well, if anyone can claim status, it's me. Are any of you apostles? Did any of you meet Jesus face to face? Did any of you preach the gospel at Corinth and plant this church that you're a member of? So he is very qualified to claim his rights. And on the basis of all of that, he could, if he chose to, make all kinds of demands. He could exercise all kinds of freedoms. And he mentions three in the next section, particularly, I think, because uh, they're issues that he is addressing with the Corinthians. So firstly, he says, uh, do we not have the right to eat and drink. There was an expectation in Jewish culture and in the wider culture of the time that a travelling rabbi, a travelling teacher should be provided with a bed and food wherever they're travelling. Whenever they came into a town they should be welcomed and provided for. Paul's alluding to that but he's probably also referring to this whole matter that he's talking about now, the, the matter of eating and drinking and eating meat in particular. In his travels, Paul couldn't count on that hospitality from his fellow Jews because often where he went, the Jews rejected him. So until he found someone who was willing to put him up for the night and to give him a meal, he would raise money by making tents and selling them in the marketplace and then he would use that money then to buy the food that he needed or to pay for lodgings. He would eat food that was offered to idols because that was all that was available. Did he have a right to? Well, he did because he was on a mission. He was commissioned by the king Secondly, he says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, a right to marry? Now, we've heard already in chapter 7 that Paul 
chose to remain unmarried and he'd been given the grace of God that enabled him to uh, be content with that state of being unmarried so that he could focus on the work of the kingdom. But he wasn't bound to that. He had the freedom to marry. Besides, the other apostles had exercised that right and were married. Why shouldn't he? The apostles' wives weren't just tag-alongs. We know from other uh, extra-biblical sources that uh, the wives of travelling teachers and rabbis uh, were actually partners in their ministry. Uh, Specifically, they would use their own trades and skills to, to work to raise money so that their husbands could then focus on the ministry that God had called them to. But like we see in the example of Priscilla and Aquila in Acts 18, uh, they were also involved in the frontline ministry with their husbands. Paul had a right to have a wife. Thirdly, he says uh, we have a right to earn a living. As I said, Paul used his tent making trade to earn money but he could have claimed his right as an apostle to be paid by the churches for his ministry. So that's what he means by earn a living, not I have a right to make tents. He says I have a right to earn a living from the ministry that I'm doing. It makes sense though, doesn't it? A soldier is provided for by the army. A worker in a vineyard is able to eat some of the grapes. A shepherd was allowed to drink milk from the sheep that he cared for. Paul's using these three examples not just as everyday examples for these people because probably they didn't know those examples firsthand because they were Gentiles living in a city. It's probably because they're three ways that the scriptures use to refer to God's people. God's people are an army. God's people are a vine. God's people are the flock. So those who are actively serving God's people might expect at the very least the provision of their basic needs. But it's not just common sense that Paul appeals to. He now turns in the next section to the scriptures themselves. What do the scriptures say about this right that he has? Well, firstly, he refers to this uh, little verse from Deuteronomy chapter 25. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It's a little law that He quotes and it comes in Deuteronomy 25 at the end of a whole series of laws about looking after the welfare of the disadvantaged and the vulnerable people in the community. Uh, It includes the law that we saw a few weeks ago that required a man to give uh, his wife a certificate of divorce if he divorced her. There were other laws about making sure that a poor person doesn't get trapped in debt, making sure that the poor people were able to come in and to, uh, to glean from the leftovers of your, your grain harvest or your vine or your olive harvest. 
So this law in the context isn't just about treating your animals well as the ox uh, was walk, they used the ox to walk on the, the grain, on the, the wheat that had been harvested to separate the grain from the stalk and it was unfair to the poor ox to muzzle it so that it couldn't eat as it was doing that work. But it's not just about treat your animals with kindness. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Jesus used this kind of argument all the time when he said, he who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. If your father cares for the sparrow, how much more does he care for you? So if the law says, provide for your animal when it works, how much more should a person made in God's image be provided for? Because a human being and their work is much more valuable than an ox and its work. But that's not the only argument from Scripture he uses. He then goes on to talk about the priests in the temple. The law made sure that the priests and the Levites, who didn't actually have part of the inheritance of the land, they didn't receive a portion of the promised land, that they were provided for because they couldn't grow crops, they couldn't have herds and flocks, they were provided for through the offerings made in the temple. So uh, Deuteronomy 18 tells us the Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel, as, as in land. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. And this shall be the priest's due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep, they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach. In, this same, in the same way, Paul says, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So he's quoted or referred to the scriptures twice And so whether you see the Apostles' ministry as a lowly thing like the ox treading out the grain or a noble thing like the priest serving in the temple, the scriptural principle is the same and Jesus himself affirms what the scriptures say in his own teaching. So even if we disagree with Paul's reasoning so far, even if we say we disagree with his argument from common sense, Uh, even if we say, well, Paul, that's just your interpretation of those Old Testament passages, we can't argue with Jesus. When Jesus sent out his apostles two by two to proclaim the kingdom of God, he said to them, acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals or a staff, for the labourer deserves his food. So the case is watertight. Paul's qualifications, common sense, the teaching of scripture, Jesus' own commands give Paul a solid, justified basis for using his rights to get for himself something as simple as his basic human needs, food, shelter, companionship, 
But what does he say? For the sake of the gospel, I don't make use of any of these rights. See how passionate Paul is about this principle. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. This begs two questions, I think. Why does he see it as a life or death issue? Why would he rather die than not be able to give up his rights? And what does he mean by his ground for boasting? The answer, I think, is that it's the difference between living contractually and living covenantally. To live contractually is to live under the law, to uh, live under obligation where you expect and you demand that that other person give you what you deserve in exchange for you giving them what they deserve. It's a system where I keep you obligated to me because you've signed a bit of paper, a contract, or because I've done something for you that puts you in debt to me. If you don't keep your side of the deal, I have the right to not keep my side of the deal. I have the right then to pull out of the contract, maybe even to then sue you for breach of contract. That's contractual living. Covenantal living is where I live not on the basis of my desire to get something from you, but my responsibility to give something to you. It's a relationship that's based on promises, not demands. Covenantal living means I'm committed to be faithful to you even if you are not faithful to me because that's how God relates to his people. God is the God who has entered into a covenant with us. He's bound himself to us on the basis of his promises to us, not on the basis of our good deeds towards him. And he's made this covenant so binding that even even when we were his enemies, undeserving of his goodness, undeserving of anything but wrath, he sent his son to die for us and to redeem us from that wrath. Why ultimately did Jesus go to the cross? Because 2,000 years before that, God swore an oath. He entered into covenant with Abraham and to all of his descendants that he would bless all nations through him. The cross is the ultimate expression of God's covenantal faithfulness to us. This Covenantal faithfulness then is what we proclaim in the Gospel. And Paul wanted to not only have the content of his Gospel to be about the covenant that God has made with us, but he wanted the way in which he went about preaching it to be expressing that covenantal relationship. The moment he started charging people for his ministry would be the moment he made the Gospel into a contract. He'd simply be another tradesperson. He'd be making the gospel into a commodity that he was selling rather than 
the free gift of God's grace. It would be no different to when he made a tent and then went to the marketplace and haggled over which was the right price to pay for that tent. If he demanded his rights and said, pay me for my ministry, then he'd just make the gospel another thing to buy or to sell. So there'd be nothing to boast about because nothing extraordinary would have happened. He just would have made a transaction. We normally think of boasting as a bad thing, don't we? And it is when we're boasting in ourselves, boasting to make much of ourselves. But there is a boasting that's good when we do it to make much of Christ. Instead of saying, see how remarkable I am, we say, see how remarkable he is. Paul's going to talk a lot about this kind of boasting in his second letter when he compares the ministry of the apostles to the ministry of other people who were claiming to be apostles but who were boasting in themselves and saying, look, my success, look at, my, look at the income that I'm receiving, that must be a sign that I'm being faithful in my ministry. Paul didn't want to operate in that contractual way. He wanted nothing to boast in except Christ and him crucified. See how he reasons this all out in verses 16 to 18. He says, preaching the gospel is a solemn responsibility. It's not something that Jesus advised. Jesus didn't say it would would be a good idea if you did this. It was a command. It was given in the Great Commission to the apostles and to the church as a whole. And it was given specifically to Paul when he met Jesus on the road. Now, when we obey a direct command, we don't think we're doing a favour for the person who's commanded us, do we? We're just fulfilling a responsibility. Jesus told a parable about that. thought I had it there. No. Let me read it out from Luke 17. Will... Any one of you who has a servant ploughing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what is our duty. So Paul recognised this solemn responsibility of anyone who's called to preach the gospel. It was a necessity laid upon him. So much so, he's willing to pronounce a curse on himself. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords had taken hold of him and given him his life mission. He was duty bound just like the servant who's responsible for looking after the household. He wasn't told by Jesus, if you, if you do this for me, then I'll pay you back with lots and lots of blessing. In fact, the only thing that Jesus promised Paul at Paul's commissioning was that Paul would suffer 
for his name. So if Paul was, was to receive anything from those to whom he ministered, he couldn't see it as a reward, he couldn't see it as anything to boast in because he's simply an unworthy servant who's just doing his duty. Now Paul could have chosen to work to minister in that way, just doing gospel ministry because it's his job, giving them the gospel in exchange for some pay. But that wouldn't be a reward. As I said, that would be contractual, contractual living. He'd just be doing it because he feels the weight of duty. But gospel ministry goes above and beyond duty because with the the responsibility also comes great privilege, a joyful privilege. Who am I? Who are you? Who are we to be entrusted with the priceless treasure of the gospel? What amazing grace that God would count us worthy of being his ambassadors. We were his enemies before Christ died for us and now he said, your government officials, your ambassadors with this treasure of the gospel. This amazing, this free grace to us means that we must also then make the gospel known for free. Jesus said, you receive without pain, so give without pay. That's the truly remarkable thing to boast in, that God in Christ gave to us in pure grace and now we can offer the immeasurable riches of the grace of the Gospel to others also freely. That's something worth boasting in. And see how in verse 18 he says his reward, the reward that comes from preaching the gospel is the fact that he gets no earthly reward. He doesn't get to exercise his rights. How is that a reward? To receive nothing for the ministry you're doing. Well, it can only be because he knows his sufficiency in Christ. He knows that in Christ he's already received all things from the hand of the Father. He is the recipient of all of God's goodness and grace. Now, the practical application of what he's saying here isn't, therefore we should go and share the Gospel. That's not the main point he's making here, although it's true. Remember, he's still dealing with this matter of do I eat meat sacrificed to idols or not? So the point isn't to state why he proclaims Jesus in every place and takes every opportunity, but how he goes about doing it, his way of operating. It's Paul's knowledge of all of the riches of the Gospel, all of the sufficiency of Christ and of this call to live covenantally instead of contractually that sets him free to then surrender his rights for the sake of the gospel in order to serve those that he's trying to reach. So, for example, 
He knows that in the Gospel he's, no, he's free from the obligations of the old covenants, all those things regarding food laws and ceremonial laws, all of the things that made a Jew distinctively Jewish, that set them apart from the Gentiles. He didn't have to follow any of those anymore. But in order to reach the Jews, he was willing to submit to some of the things that the Jews expected. So he wouldn't cause any unnecessary offence. So he says to the Jews, I became as a Jew. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. We know that Paul at one point in his travels uh, took a vow and at the end of the time of vow he shaved his head. Um, He was willing to submit to that because it made no difference to him but it meant he was able to uh, have an open door to preach the Gospel to the Jews. But then he also knows that in the Gospel he hasn't lost his Jewishness, his upbringing, his culture, his language. They're all part of who he is. He doesn't just throw out his culture. He would have felt most comfortable living and operating as a Jew, eating only certain types of foods, praying in a certain way and so on. But some of the things about his Jewishness would have been a barrier to Gentiles. They would have seemed very strange, maybe even offensive. So he was willing to sacrifice his cultural comforts in order to relate to the Gentiles so that they might be willing to hear the message that he's come to proclaim. When we come to Christ, we lay down all of our rights at the foot of his throne. We acknowledge him as Lord and God, him who alone has the right to rule our lives. But we, we do so knowing that while we, we give up all of our earthly rights, we're granted in him a new right. John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but of God. With this right, and it's the only place really in the scriptures that talks about believers in Jesus having a right, it's a right to be a child of God, with this comes wonderful privileges. We are members of the Father's household. But it also comes with solemn responsibilities. We're then to be on about the business of the Father and his household. We know that we're no longer our own. We've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. So we're called to no longer live for ourselves but for him. And what does it mean to live for him? What does it mean? What does it look like to live for Christ? Well, primarily it means serving Christ by serving his people. We serve those who are already in the church, Christ's body, but we're also serving those who have yet to come into the church, who will come in through the preaching of the gospel. I suggested last week that the Corinthians had asked Paul, why can't we eat 
meat sacrificed to idols because they had a right to do so. The answer is you only have one right and it's in Christ and it is a right to be a child of God, to be a child of the Father. And even that right has been freely and generously given to you by the Father. It's not something you can demand. But that right means that you're now called to joyfully and willingly and eagerly lay aside any earthly rights you think you have, even spiritual rights you think you have for the sake of the Gospel. Finally, Paul uses the example of an athlete. This is an example of someone who lays aside their rights for a greater good. This athlete knows that in order to be able to run and to obtain the prize, they must go through tough discipline. They must give up some of the pleasures and the comforts of life, laying aside their own plans and desires. No athlete who just eats McDonald's and sits around all day watching TV is going to have any hope of winning. In fact, they won't even pass the qualifying test to get into the team. An Olympic athlete in the ancient world went to all of this trouble in order to be qualified to run the race and to win the prize. It was a prize that they had no guarantee of winning. And even if they did win, it would only last for a time, maybe until the next games when someone else ran faster or beat their record. And the physical prize they received was a wreath made out of plants. Very quickly it would dry and crumble and fall apart. We run, however, as athletes in a race where the prize has already been won by Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And in this race, the prize is actually Christ himself. It's an imperishable prize that will never fade. In this race, giving up our rights is inconsequential because all of our rights fade into insignificance in comparison with knowing Christ. Jim Elliot was a missionary who's famously known for saying, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Elliot spent years training at Bible college, preparing to go as a missionary to the Orca people of South America in Ecuador. He knew the risks of going to a people who were known to be violent and hostile to people from the outside. Within a few weeks of making direct contact with these people, he was killed by them, along with four of his colleagues. Jim Elliot surrendered his rights, even his right to live, because he knew the great love of the Father, both for him and for the people he was wanting to reach. Not only that, his wife, Elizabeth, after his death, didn't return home to America 
she continued to reach out to these people who had killed her husband and many of them eventually became Christians, even the man who had murdered her husband. So, seen in this eternal perspective, wanting to claim my right to eat the food that I want becomes quite a petty thing, doesn't it? Even the consequences for a Corinthian Christian of not participating in these feasts, of not going to the feasts in the temple, maybe they lost the business deal, maybe they lost their job, maybe they were ostracised from their family or their community, maybe they faced persecution. But all of that should be overshadowed by the glory of knowing Christ, the wonderful reality of being part of God's family. Let's pray.